2: Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts podcast, episode number two. I'm P.F. Wilson, the content director here at Cincy Shirts, as well as our sibling site, OldSchoolShirts.com. Today on our show, John Kieswetter, he's the media columnist for WVXU.
1: Uh, the first color cameras come here in the late 50s, and they don't do the reds, they don't do the news, they do Ruth Lyons first. There were so many color sets per capita that RCA gave an award to WLW calling this Color Town, USA.
2: WVXU is our local public radio station here in Cincinnati. And for many years, John worked in the same capacity at our morning daily newspaper, the Cincinnati Inquirer. Darren and I had a great chat with him about the early days of radio broadcasting in Cincinnati, the introduction of TV, and the many talented people who made it all happen, including Ruth Lyons and Rod Serling. Uh, John's got some great stories to tell us about all those folks. Also sitting in is Dan Shriver from our Hyde Park store. He used to work at the Museum Center here in town, and he's a bit of a history buff, you could say, so he chimed in with a couple of questions. So let's do it. Let's talk to John Keyswater about Cincinnati radio and TV history. Cincinnati,
0: Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from C I N C I N N A T I. Cincinnati. She came down from Cincinnati. Just maybe think of me once in a while. I. CincyShirts dot Cincinnati. All
2: right, now joining us right now on the Cincy Shirts podcast it is John Keswetter. He's uh, you probably know him best as the uh, radio and TV uh, writer reporter for the Cincinnati Inquiry for all oh, those many years, and now works for our local public radio station WVXU. And uh, how long have you been there, John?
1: I've been there three years, and before that was uh, forty years of the Enquirer. Last thirty as TV critic. All right, and were you always TV critic? I No, no, no. I, I started. At, <laughs> I I graduated from a high U, they offered me a thirteen week summer internship to, just as a, in the newsroom, and I parlayed that into forty years. So, I, I was a general assignment reporter, suburban reporter, county government reporter, assistant city editor. Um, was our regional editor over our bureaus back when we had bureaus in Lebanon, Middletown, Hamilton, Lawrenceburg, then Kentucky. Then I did about a three year stint as our features editor back over the tempo section when we had a tempo section in the Sunday A&E. We had a Sunday magazine, local magazine. And one day my uh, TV critic came in and said he quit, that he's got a job. He's going to Disney World. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Doing <laughs> PR. And I began thinking, I thought, God. You know, that sounds more fun than, than being a middle-level manager and worrying about who's going to paste up the food section on a holiday weekend and hiring a classical music critic and all the other things, you know. you know The weekend cover was always kind of fun, but it, after about the third year, it got a cut. It got hard trying to photograph Oktoberfest a week before it happened. You know, after three years, I was kind of out of ideas. And so I made a pitch to step out of management, go back to writing, and uh, – Never look back. It's been great fun.
2: So, were you always interested in radio and television as well as journalism?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I went to uh, high university. Uh, you know, was managing editor of the paper. Thought I was going to go off and be you know the great managing editor somewhere in the you know the Watergate era, all the president's men. But growing up, I, I, I was always fascinated by radio and TV. I'd, I'd listen to uh, like the Detroit Tigers out of WJR out of Detroit, or the, the Braves out of WSB Atlanta. And I was, you know, grew up in this in the '60s with this wealth of live television, where you had, um, you know, Ruth Lyons and Paul Dixon and Bob Braun and and Clooney and everybody. So um, yeah, yeah, I was just always fascinated by radio and TV. I, I never dreamed for a day that I, that's what I'd end up doing, but it was uh, fun to do.
2: And so, Koshintai has a really rich broadcast history, and uh, I guess that would probably start with Paul Crosby, or is it start before that?
1: It's really Paul Crosley in 1922 when he when he started. Uh, I call it the first radio stunt. You know, uh, he his son wanted a radio set and they were like hugely expensive. And he said, "No, we can make one cheaper than that." So he he made a really expensive set. I think for under ten dollars. And that he kind of became the Henry Ford of radio. Uh, but I, but so he started this. So he had a radio. So he needed content. So so he started a station WLW out of his home in College Hill. And he liked this song called the Song of India so he played it over and over again. I mean, we think of Mark Sebastian locked in a q102 studio, <laughs> yeah. playing the same song out. I mean he did it in 1922. Um, wow so that was radio and then um, you know he brought in Red Barber and started the whole baseball on the, after he bought the Reds in 34. Uh, actually in 35 WLW was one of the, the um, inaugural partners in mutual radio. But the deal was, you're going to use our announcer, Red Barber, on the Mutual uh, World Series broadcast. So that's how WLW became one of the charter members of that. You know, right before the... In 39, they started playing around video um, by wire, not by telecast. And then after the war, uh, started playing around with with, uh, television in fall of 47. And in um, actually February of 48, so it's going to be the... uh, what is that the 70th anniversary coming up in February of uh, Channel Five as the city's first TV station? So, yeah, it's it's been a wonderful. And then in the 60s and early 70s, you had all these live shows, you know, before Hour Magazine and and all the syndicated shows. But you know, you you had a you had in the 60s you had both Ruth Lyons and Paul Dixon. They had a in-house orchestra. They had a music library. They had singers on staff. I mean, it was just um, it was it, it was an amazing time.
2: So, Paul Crosby, before he starts WLW, he's involved in other things, isn't he? It brought is his he, was, he was a real
1: entrepreneur. One of the things that that he did was he had dec- after World War One decorative radiator caps for your car, and it, you'd have <laughs> like flags on it, and that was that, and some other things that he was into. Um, and, and there was a two brothers. There was Paul and Lewis. And Powell would come up with these ideas, and then Lewis would make it happen, because after they got into broadcasting, and the, the 20, then they got into appliances, uh, up at the Voice of America, they have a Powell-Crosley uh, exhibit. If you've been refrigerator shopping lately, you've seen an LG with the screen in it, a mm-hmm. TV screen mm-hmm. in the refrigerator. Well in the late 30s, early 40s, they had a refrigerator with a radio built in to the top of it, uh-huh. where, the, where you now see the uh, the ice part, uh, the, the ice chest. So.
0: He also had a, a a suckovac, which is you put on your head for uh, pulling the hair out, so you could grow your hair. It was like a little Vespa helmet with a tube on it, and like attached to a bread maker that like was going
1: to suck the, uh, <laughs> activate and, and pull the hair follicles out of a moldy. And he used it himself, but he got sued and that got shut down about about a year and a half.
2: So how long was he in broadcasting? Did he stay through? Through the television years, or no,
1: no, no. This this is the other amazing story. I, I think it was in nineteen forty six, right after the war. Um, he was infatuated with the small car, the Crosley. Oh yeah, and it it had, but it had an aluminum engine block. So my wife had a Vega. I don't know if any of you had Vegas. My mom had, had a Vega, and Vega. she sold
2: it to a buddy of hers. And a week later, the engine blew. The engine block cracked. It was made out of aluminum.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's what he had. But he had the he had the first subcompact car called the Crosley and he's cashed out of broadcasting I think 46 and then 47 television comes you know and he he sold out to the Aviation Corporation of America Avco they kept the name Crosley but so all the the big years of of television when when literally having a license to broadcast television it was a license to print money he missed out on it oh wow and he, he stayed alive. He he died in the spring of '61. He still owned the Reds, and the '61 is when the Reds went to the World Series. But he died that spring before the, the seeing the team go back to the World Series. Hmm.
2: And so, what other stations were prominent uh, after WLW? Well, for WLW, I, uh, I want to ask you, you might know this. Uh, for a while, they uh, were 100,000 watts, and most the most powerful station you can have in the United States is 50,000 uh, watts, as
1: people no, they may were, know. F- they were 500,000 watts. That, maybe, that it, was it. it. And you could hear
2: it in your fillings, yeah, my dad yeah, said. Yeah, it was an ex- Literally. <laughs> it was
1: an experiment. After they, they moved the tower from Harrison up to Tylersville, up there on, the, on a ridge, um, they, they had... Uh, experimental um, uh, granted granted experimental use of 500,000 watts from 19 for five years um, and um, so, so they did that and they called it superpower <laughs> and so it, this was also one of my favorite stories so in 1934 they they turn on this thing and they five hundred thousand watts I mean the, the woman uh, was that there was a farm across the street? She said the uh, the oven rack in her oven would vibrate. She could hear the station. Then it was coming in downspoutings down at the corner of Route 42 in Tylersville. There was a motel with neon lights, and they never went out. I mean, it was just the, the radiation of this. <laughs> so ask me later about them now talking about putting a shopping center under this huge tower. So a- anyway, <laughs> so they, so they so they had this big party at the Netherland Hilton. And FDR actually flips the switch in '34, and Pal Crosley is, and they get a they get a note from General David Sarnoff, they get a note from uh, Bill Paley, CBS, and and uh Crosley's convinced that he could be heard worldwide. So they actually make a statement, in read it in Italian, hoping that Marconi would hear them in Italy. <laughs> Very cool. But there's ne- never any any indication that that Marconi heard them, but. But there was, it was just this big flamethrower that went from 34 to 39. And then after 39, when their five years ran out, they did keep the experimental overnight a little bit uh, for the next two or three years. But it, it was, uh, and the remnants of the, of the transmitter, the, which had these, you know, you think of radio tubes if you're of my age, a radio tube was about the size of a, you know, about three or four inches tall. But the radio tubes for this thing were five feet tall. Oh my gosh. And about the width of um, of a soccer ball. And it had this whole big array of tubes. And the building is still there under the tower. And it, and they also had a pond out front because they had to circulate the water to cool it and then huh. bring it back in around the tubes. But uh, there, there is a, up at the uh, Voice of America in the museum up there, there is one of these tubes sitting in the corner. Mm. The, the other cool thing <laughs> that I had never seen until a couple... A couple of months ago there's this big aluminum ball about the size of a medicine ball so it's big twice the size of a basketball and that used to sit on top of the wlw tower on, on tylosville and you you can look at it and there's all these holes and dents all over it because it took lightning strikes yeah. ah. <laughs> and, and and there's where it punctu- punctuated it punctured it and uh, it—I'd never seen it until they did the Crosley exhibit up at the VOA. So that was pretty cool. And so that's what led to uh, Hitler calling us the Cincinnati liars, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the crazy Cincinnati guy with the radio station. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was. It was. And at the same time that they were doing that, then in the early forties, they built Voice of America up there, which is this huge antenna form with all kind of antennas that broadcast around the world and it relayed. There was not a, ever a broadcasting studio there, but it relayed programming from Washington to South America and around the globe.
2: So, and was that chosen because it was like that prime piece of ground you needed for shortwave and I AM radio?
1: Part of it was chosen because it was a prime piece of ground on a kind of... It's yeah, on a plateau. It's on, on a, a plateau. plateau. Yeah. And secondly, you had all the Crosley engineers here. Um, mm-hmm. You had all the, you know, there was a, there was a guy that I interviewed who did one of the first Red Games back in 1929 or 30. He was actually the first voice heard on WCKY radio in, in, in 1929 when it was uh, CKY, Covington, Kentucky. And he was here for a couple of years and did well and he left Crosley and went to NBC New York um, owned by GE. And he said he was stunned that the equipment here for Crosley was better than the equipment that that he found in in New York at NBC. So the, the engineers, you know, and you think of the co-op programming at program at UC for engineers and other disciplines. That that's more than a hundred years old. Um, so they they uh, they had a, a great group of engineers who could figure out anything. In fact, they had this big array of antennas, like forty. This we called it the antenna farm when we drive up and down 75, and up there at the VOA is a slide rule. And it's the slide rule of Clyde Hanley, because, well, you know, 75 years before computers, he figured out the projections for all these needed for for to broadcast to South America and other parts of the globe on a slide rule.
2: Wow. And uh, so you can go up there now, and the, the original building is still there. The
1: original building is still there, and in the, the back part, is a, there's a C- permanent Crosley exhibit. Um, there's a... What's called the shell door refrigerator? Because Crosley was the first to put shells on the inside mm-hmm. of the door. Uh, there's some. Um, um, there's the big ball from the top of the of the WLW tower. There's um some TVs, some radios, some of the early radios, and that. And, and there's the Crosley exhibit. And then on another part, it's the gray history of wireless. So there's like about probably close to 100 radios, and we're talking about 1920s that, that looked like the size of a suitcase, wooden things, and then they were put on end and put on legs, so it was furniture for your room. And then another part, uh, there's the Cincinnati Broadcasting Museum by a group called Media Heritage, and that's where Uncle Al's accordion is and his straw hat. Oh. And there's a, a Ruth Lyons' dress. There's an, an old TV cameras from like the 1980s of wlw there's uh, a q102 jacket from chris o'brien uh, dusty Rhodes grr jacket um and a group of headshots for what was started as the as the cincinnati broadcast hall of fame back in the 90s that that has kind of stopped and they're they're looking at a way to redo it but eventually they're going to have that whole area redone as a nice museum um, and a doorway put in from the side, so it's handicapped accessible. Because as you come in, you got to go up and down steps, right? Now,
2: uh, so. so, Voice of America is still going, though, isn't it? Voice or is of America
1: it? is still going; it still exists. Uh, uh, their headquarters is on the Washington D.C. Mall, a couple of blocks away from the Air and Space Museum. Uh, but there's nothing here. They, they shut this down in late '80s, early '90s, and um, but they kept the building, which is great, which has a has an observation post on the top of it. And even down the road at WLW, there's still an observation mm-hmm. post there too to to um, make sure nothing bad happens. And the antenna <laughs>
2: farm is now a big park for the, the city of Westchester. It's a, a
1: big park for Westchester. Part of it is the VOA uh, uh, shopping mall and the yeah. and the uh, UC hospital. And then down the road is still the, the um, WLW diamond-shaped antenna. I think there's only four in America that way. It's actually... If you look at it; it's two antennas put together. Great. Right. So, but that property was sold by iHeartMedia, which owns WLW, uh, three or four years ago, and I did a, a story on my blog last uh, August that that uh, the new owners want to put a shopping mall and businesses underneath it. And I'm thinking. <laughs> if you're there and you go to a restaurant, you're not going to get any Wi Fi. You're sitting under this, <laughs> this blowtorch. Yeah. Um, and, and some other engineers I've been with said, Yeah, that restaurant wouldn't need a toaster. You could just put it right outside. Yeah. But the other issue is you're going to be parking under this tower. And, and anybody who ever worked at Channel 12, where the tower is right next to the building, talks about the icicles falling off mm-hmm. the tower when the, when the great milk comes. <laughs> if you can imagine. Icicles falling from the tower, tower, and all the guide wires. Uh, just
0: not to mention all the the vultures and birds that roost it, on it. That would be dragging oh, yeah. things on you as well.
1: <laughs> Actually, back in the late twenties, early thirties, a, a small plane ran into it, and and the and it crashed, and and the pilot tragically died, but the tower wasn't hurt. I mean. It, <laughs> It's a rigid thing. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's solid. And that's still
2: I, WLW's tower, right? It's
1: still WLW's tower, and I think there are one or two other stations on it. Uh, at one point, I know uh, the 96.5 country station was was broadcast from there, um, and I'm not sure what else is on it now. But it's, it's, it's. So anyway, I just grew up in, in Middletown fascinated by broadcasting, and, and then I fell into this job where I get to meet many of the icons and legends around town, and um, and and then be able to write about the history and, and and study it and research it a bit. So it's been great fun.
2: So, and we get TV in 47, you say, in Cincinnati, 48?
1: Experimental TV started in the summer of 47, and it, in February 48, it became commercial. But what's fascinating, and I wrote about this a long time ago, so in that window from the summer 47 to February 48, they did the first Reds game. They did a, a Harlem Globetrotters professional basketball game at, at Music Hall Arena. Which now, now who won that game? Uh, I, <laughs> they did a, a, a some basketball, college basketball, including a UC UK game. They did. Um, they got the, the head of the head meteorologist at the Weather Bureau to come in and do a show about the weather. They they did a thing where they they uh, said if you're watching us. Send us a postcard, oh, yeah. a postcard and give away a lamp and a milliard schedule. So I'm thinking in the first six months, they discovered weather. They discovered <laughs> sports. They discovered uh, giveaways marketing. to get uh, marketing, to get listeners. Um, so it was like they stumbled in everything. The, the other great story that I've heard is that they did the first college football game at Nippert. They only had two cameras. So they put one at the 50-yard line on this side, and they put one at the 50-yard line on the other side. So when this camera, camera one, the guy's running this way, they cut to the other. He's hand, the other way. <laughs> right. So that's why they learned very quickly yeah. that, that you got to keep all the cameras on the same side of the football field, or they're they're running.
2: <laughs> I know. I had a, when I was in uh, high school TV production, that was one of the first things he taught us, and we were we were doing a baseball game, so we don't have to worry about it for baseball. Because yeah, he just said no, you don't. They only run run way around the bases. They're not going to run counterclockwise. People, are, I guess that would look weird if they did do that. So, but um, so. How many TVs are in town at this point in the experimental stage? Because not no, ever-
1: there's just one. So, so in um, when I was working for the Enquirer, I said, "Hey, I want to do a story on the 50th anniversary of television, and write about the experiment, the, all this experimental stuff that led up to this first broadcast in in February 48." And it came down from on high that one of the Enquirer editors said, "Well, you can't do it unless you include all the TV stations." I said, "Well, WLW was in 48." WKRC didn't come along to 49. The summer of 49, WCPO came along. And, and Channel 19 didn't come along to like 1968. So, you know, the it's I have to write about nothing about WLW because they were way far ahead of the, of the curve. They were one of the first NBC affiliates uh, for NBC out of New York. Um, you know, the, they these people literally invented it. Um, and so... The editor, I was allowed to go ahead and do the story, and I wrote it for the Sunday A&E cover, and it's Thursday afternoon, and they're starting to put together the page, because the pages, at that time, the A&E pages came up on Thursday, because it's an early press run. And the editor of the paper heard about the story, read it, and really liked it, and <laughs> was threatening to pull it out of the section and put it on page one, because he thought it was such a good story.
2: Oh,
1: wow. Um, but, but my editor prevailed, saying, look, if you take it off my page at this point, I got nothing for the for the entertainment section. Because I've been counting on this for, for weeks because you said, you know, you didn't want it. So anyway, it's, um, yeah, so they were like a year and a half ahead. But uh, then CPO started uh, with Scripps money and, and Taft Broadcasting. The Taft family that owned the Time Star and WKRC Radio had channel, well, it actually started channel 11. It's now channel 12. Um CPO had radio in the old WCPO radio. Uh, to back up, by the, by the late 20s, you had WKRC. And it was started by a company called the Kodell Radio Company. Um, they made radios, uh-huh. which is KRC. Yeah, CKY was out of Covington, Kentucky by L.V. Wilson, who was a banker on the second floor of his bank. So that was CKY. And then there was CP- CPO, and I'm not sure when it started. It was 1230 that's now... Uh, Twelve thirty, the buzz, but it was CPO AM and uh, later WBE AM. In fact, in the sixties, Danny K owned a piece of the of, of it. KRC Radio was one of the first CBS radio affiliates in the mid twenties as a charter member, and so they were always CBS until the sixties or seventies. And um, th- th- then, um, so so you had a number and, and WSAI. Was started by uh, in the twenties by American playing uh, U.S. playing cards in Norwood. huh. Oh. but apparently they used it to broadcast instructional stuff about how to play cards to promote their card business. So they got into radio to promote and sell playing cards, and and eventually Crosley bought them, and Crosley had SAI and and, and WLW radio for a while.
2: So when TV starts, how many people actually have TVs in town? It's probably six. Eight, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: <clears throat> I, my father tells a story of having the one neighborhood, one kid in the neighborhood at a, at a TV and everyone going over there to watch the Lone Ranger. This was a 49, 40, 48. Uh,
1: I just found out recently my, my grandfather, who, who died in 1949 of cancer. So he was, I never met him years before I was born. But, but my aunt told me, he said, Well, you know, your, your dad and his brother, so the two sons, bought a TV because as he was dying for cancer of cancer and living in the living room and couldn't get up and down the steps, they bought an old TV. Um, I, so I don't know. I, I know that in the – in C, CPO went on in 49. Our um, director was Al Lewis, and he started basically the Uncle Al children's show. Early on there, they had Paul Dixon and others, and all they did was pantomime to records. And they drew these elaborate backdrops to songs that they had. And they had a woman who was uh, Dottie Mac, Dottie Mackaloosa from the west side of town. And she was this Panamitis with Paul Dixon and occasionally a very young Bob Braun. And so Dixon goes national on the what was then the Dumont Network, which doesn't exist anymore. It did in the early 50s. And... Dottie Mac told me a, a few years ago, she said she gets this overture from Bob Hope's producer, said, you know, would you come on our show and sing? And she said, I don't sing. I <laughs> pantomime. You know, if you want me to come on and sing, I'm going to be pantomining to to Doris Day or to uh, to Rosemary Clooney because I don't sing. But, you know, here's this little upstart WCPO. And all of a sudden they're putting out national programming, too, as Channel 5 had Ruth Lyons on nationally in 51, their signature weekly country music show, the um, Midwest Hayride. Mm-hmm. Um, in the summer, when Sid Caesar took the summer off, the, they were a summer replacement show, because Caesar would do 39 weeks, and then the 12 weeks of summer, uh, Midwest Hayride went on. And almost every summer through the 50s, Midwest Hayride was on nationally, seen from c- Cincinnati uh, from here. And then, and then uh, Channel Twelve decided they they wanted to try to do dramas, and they had a half hour live drama done called "The Storm" starting in '51. And this is this is the old Time Star building downtown on Broadway, which is now I think Domestic Relations Court. So the ceilings are probably only like eight foot. I mean, it's a <laughs> it's a business uh, uh, office, and that's where they were doing these dramas and. Over at WLW was a guy named Rod Serling, who when he graduated from Antioch got a job writing at WLW. And they he wanted to write drama. And instead he's writing uh, Patter, chatter for Midwestern Hayride and Melody <laughs> Showcase and writing travel logs and all this other crap. And so he goes across town as a freelancer and, and writes these half-hour dramas called for the storm. Um uh, for a producer by the name of Bob Huber. So from 51 to 52, he does like 30 scripts. And he finally quits WLW to, and that's when he started doing patterns and other, these other uh, live lux dramas, live network stuff out of New York. But he got his start because WLW didn't want him to do it and he did <laughs> it at, at KRC. And KRC filmed a couple. They were hoping that they could launch a national drama series out of Cincinnati from these half-hour shows. They could never get the advertising for it, and the and it fell through. The show was canceled. Serling then, if you can imagine it. so we're sitting here with a laptop and iPhones and all this. So you're a freelancer in, in the early 50s, and you're selling uh, one-hour dramas to, to New York, to networks in New York. You, you don't have a fax machine. You don't have email. You don't have an iPhone. You don't have a laptop. So he's like, he's he. he type it out on a manual typewriter, put it in an envelope, mail it to his agent. His agent would call and say, hey, this, this network's interested. Can you come up? So he'd have to get on an airplane, fly to New York, and make his pitch. And that was the life of him. As a, And finally, eventually, he moved to Connecticut, to suburban New York, and then moved to L.A. before the, the, uh, the Twilight Zone. But there's, there's some of those scripts. I've only seen a few. I've seen the, all the titles. That were half-hour versions of what later became the Twilight Zones or became. He did one about a box aging boxer called the Twilight Rounds, which later became a rec, rec Room for heavyweight. But the seeds of it are here, mm-hmm. and apparently he would he would go watch Ezra Charles box at the end of his career at the old music hall arena. It's, if you're familiar with music hall, as you're looking in the front on the south side is the ballroom, yeah. on the right was an arena. With a with a floor that you could do basketball or auto shows or ice hockey or the ice capades, you know it didn't seat that much. I'm going to guess this is just a guess, probably five six thousand. So when they built the gardens, you know that just kind of blew it out of the water. But and, and that's now warehouse space and office space. Uh, when they redid Music Hall, nobody talked about redoing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 on the, huh. on the north wing. So
2: um, you mentioned the Dumont network. Did Dumont have an affiliate here?
1: Dumont was nine. Oh, okay. And so, and in fact, uh, Dixon and Dottie Mac did some shows. And actually, Dixon left here in 54 or 59 and went to New York for Dumont. And it and because uh, Letterman's Letterman grew up in Indianapolis watching watching Dixon on Channel thirteen in Indianapolis, which was a sister station and carried a Crosley sister station and carried Ruth Lyons and Paul Dixon. But his. Uh, Producer Bob Morton one time told me, he said, yeah, you know, he, he, he remembered watching Dixon on Dumont in the early to mid-50s. And then in, in uh, 55, he we went to New York, and the whole thing fell apart. And he actually came back to Cincinnati in like 55 or 56, but was hired by WLW-TV. And he did his own show in Midwestern Hayride. Uh, another one that started here was Gene Shepard, the guy who wrote A Christmas Story. He he came here in radio. He was grew up in Hammond, Indiana. Came here in radio in the late '40s, and uh, which was that time was just playing records, basically. That's what radio was, except he liked to talk. And he he was quoted in an Inquirer story many years later that that he was probably fired by every station in town because he wanted to talk and they wanted him to play more records. And uh, at one point for one of the stations, it was either CPO or CKY. He was the morning man. He did a midday show, he took a nap, he came back and did the night show. And um, he, he went to the owner and said, look, you know, I'm here morning, noon, and night. Uh, can, I, can I get a cot? Will you pay for a cot so <laughs> I can take a nap? <laughs> and the manager said, no, I'm sorry. He says, that would be a furniture allowance. And we, don't, <laughs> we, we might do some clothing, but we don't do any furniture allowances. But, so he would have been here in the early 50s at the same time as Rod Serling. And up the road, Jonathan Winters was a date. I always wondered if, if the three of them might have met, you know, plus Bob Shreve, who was a late-night funny man. You know, they're all here at the same time. And you can imagine sitting around a bar after a show, and there's Serling, the angry young man, and then there's Jonathan Winters, who's crazy, and then there's um, Gene Shepard, who won't shut up, and uh, Bob Shreve. And, you know, it was, it was the, the talent that was here was, and it drew other talent, you know, through the, all the way until the Braun show was canceled in the early '80s.
2: So, who's the first big star? Is Ruth Lyons, first big TV star in Cincinnati? Or
1: Ruth was, was probably. The, she was a big radio star on KRC. I mean, her uh, she was hired as a music librarian at KRC, and then later was was the um, the program director, of the, and 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 she slept in the station during the '37 flood and did a lot of reports. And yeah. then in the right before the advent of television, Crosley made her a real big, uh, you know, you know, huge offer. And she jumped stations and then was in 51. The TV started in in 48. And in 51, the Ruth Lyons show went on Fifty-Fifty club on NBC network for a year. She hated it (laughs) because she wanted to just do her local commercials and not the national stuff, but she was on for a year. And after a year, uh, she has told other, she told other people after that said, I fired the network. They didn't fire me. I just, I had fed them. So she was the first really big, the other was the Midwestern Hayride, you know, before that in the, in the forties was a country music show called Boone County Jamboree, kind of like the radio jamborees in Chicago, WLS and, and down at the, um, what's the one in Kentucky that's still occasionally on. There's another, uh, somebody County Jamboree in, in Kentucky. Um, so th- those were probably the two big ones, and you know, and and Ruth Lyons gave away free tickets, but you had to write in to get them, and it was like a three-year wait. I mean, it was, it, you know, Letterman for his show on CBS and would be like a year wait, and people thought it was crazy, but it was like a three-year wait. She wouldn't do a endorse a product unless she had tested it. Uh, the first color cameras come here in the late fifties, and they don't do the Reds, they don't do the news, they do Ruth Lyons first. It was in color. And, and in fact, the, 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 there were so many color sets per capita that RCA gave an award to WLW calling this Color Town USA because it really drove the sale. Of, now, you talked about your neighborhood, my neighborhood. There was one guy down the street that had the, had the color TV, a woman who was a shut-in. So on opening day, a group of us in the neighborhood were allowed after school to go down and, <laughs> and join her and watch the Reds in color in the, in the oh, wow. 60s. And we went to another person's house to watch, was it Mary Martin's Peter Pan, the big live telecast of that. Uh, so growing
2: up in Middletown, you have both Dayton and Cincinnati, or are you more Cincinnati? No, no,
1: of- you're, you're right on, because we actually had a motor on the antenna. Yeah. So my dad could crank it to Dayton to watch uh, Channel 7 so he could see Jerry Lucas of Middletown play for Ohio State and then he could turn it the other way to watch
2: the Reds play. <laughs> my uh, dad told a story. He grew up in Youngstown, and Youngstown, before they had their stations, you had to have Cleveland or Pittsburgh. You had to aim at one or the other. Uh, a, g- a gal he was dating's dad put a little periscope handles on his antenna, and he would turn them. So what <laughs> my dad and his buddies would do is he would they would sneak into the yard, and when he was watching TV, they'd just turn it ever so slightly, and he'd get up and adjust it. The n- then they would turn it back real quickly before he had a notion to go out and turn the antenna. So, um, Which,
1: with digital, nobody understands that. That's right. Because you either yeah. get a great Picture, or you get you don't get the snowy stuff, and you don't have the vertical hole and the hor- horizontal. And yeah, the, yeah. All the other buttons. Either, either comes in or it doesn't. Yes.
2: Um, so Uncle Al comes along when.
1: 1950. He was on for 35 years, from 50 to 85, and I only remember that because I started on the TV beat in 85, and literally, in um, September, and that Christmas I wrote this long piece. that was really the end of the of the uh, of the Uncle Al show. Uh, So, yeah, he was to 85. Uh, Before then, there was Skipper Ryle on Channel 12, and he had left long before that, although Glenn Ryle stayed on as as a movie announcer when they did afternoon movies. He did bowling for dollars. He did the weather. I mean, he did a little bit of everything. I mean, the news was an afterthought to most of these stations. It was the live programming that they made most of their money on. So.
2: And another character that uh, comes along with a phenomenon that actually appears in a lot of different markets at, uh, in the late 50s, of course, is here, the shock theater movie host. And, of course, here they had The Cool Ghoul.
1: Had The Cool Ghoul in like 68, yeah, uh, 68, WNOP comes along, uh, WXIX comes along. And if you look at, ever look at their station ID, it's it's Newport, Cincinnati. Technically, it's licensed to Newport. That's how they could get the additional TV station into this market. And they weren't an independent. I mean, they didn't go Fox till like 80, 87, 88. Um, I, I, I remember it was in the late 80s and I get a phone call from the woman who's the program director at Fox 19, just 19 at that point. She said, hey, we're going to pick up the Joan Rivers show. And I said, okay. And she said, we're going to pick up the Joan Rivers show. And I thought for a few minutes, and I thought, So does that mean you're going to become a Fox affiliate? And they said yes. And so in Living Color, The Simpsons, and all that early stuff, um, and when I it was funny when I go to the Fox 19 was such a a a strong independent when it went Fox and had such a strong following that when I'd go out to the to the TV press tour twice a year and meet with all the executives and the the Fox people, you know, would always seek me out because. Channel 19 was one of the best Fox affiliates right out of the box, for that. So you mentioned movie. I thought you were going to say Bob Shreve and the All Night Theater. So,
2: no, I don't know about that. I say I'm from Cleveland. I know about the Cool Google. In Cleveland, we had three horror movie hosts for years: uh, Friday night, Saturday afternoon, and, and Saturday night. So, and but typically, I guess the story was the. Um, the reason they got started, because Universal Studios released this big package of B-horror movies, and they encouraged stations, you should have somebody host this, and they usually grab the weather guy or the news guy. So was that the case with The Cool Ghoul as the well? The
1: Cool Ghoul was a veteran radio announcer, Dick Van Hane, um, who, uh, in Bad Megan... And actually, he did, the, he did the, the horror movie, as I recall, eight, but it's six they did a comedy film and that's actually where I learned to watch the Marx Brothers. Ah. They did the Bowery Boys and the Three Stooges and others, Abbott Costello, but I really found I loved the Marx Brothers and then they did the this comedy, comedian hosting the horror films. Uh, Bob Shreve was an old vaudeville style comedian who hosted the late night movie. And there were any kind of movies, but he just made fun of them. Um, and he did it for about a 20 year stretch on 5, 9, and 12. And he was, he was, it was such a cult thing to watch that, like when uh, Adam West was here for the Cavalcade of Customs, he showed up in Batman costume. <laughs> uh, Cosby, after one of his, Bill Cosby, after a, a concert somewhere, was so mesmerized by this crazy guy do, that he that he came on, and and Cosby came, so most of the time it was just kind of I will say bad, just old jokes and stick and, and and all. But uh, uh, so we had Shreve and we had. Um, and we had the Cool Goal. The Cool Goal had a nice long run, yeah.
2: yeah. And it's interesting how uh, each city has its own kind of unique uh, horror movie host. Um,
1: it, it was one of them Ghilardi.
2: Yeah, Goularty well, was first in 60—this is in Cleveland, where I'm from. We also have a, a sister site, folks, out there, old school shirts. You can buy a Goularty shirt. And uh, Goularty was first, and then he—it was Ernie Anderson, who was famous for being the ABC announcer in the 70s, uh, most famous saying, the love boat, among many other uh, announcements he would make for the network. And uh, yeah, he left uh, Cleveland after three years at the behest of his buddy Tim Conway, who had been kicked off Cleveland TV, Uh, and he went to Los Angeles. Ernie Anderson followed him out, became an announcer, and then one of his uh, disciples, a guy named Ron Swede, became the ghoul. On Independence Station, Channel Sixty-One, with Goularty's blessing, he said, "Yeah, you can do the shtick if you want." Well, do
1: you, do you watch BTV?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: So, so who is that on the air? Swingley. He's, he's, he's from Chicago. He's from Chicago. Yeah. Chicago. Okay.
2: And about the same era. Yeah. I don't know if he's originally the original or would be somebody. I he's
0: a new Swingley. He, he sure.
2: picked up so, yeah. to, same schtick, The
0: Same shtick. Yeah. The same kind like, of like Lassie. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Keep <laughs> <new> <laughs> one
2: yeah in. And yeah. with a lot of these guys, <laughs> they'd be like, they'd be a, a ghoul, like yeah. the cool ghoul or a vampire or something like that. But the ghoul, the original ghoul shtick was to be. Uh, kind of a beatnik, and he would make fun of he would, uh, of the movies, too, uh, like Bob Shreve would. And, uh, and the other thing he would do, he would uh, do these on-air pranks. They actually set off fireworks in the Channel 8 studios one time, and they had to, like, get a fire extinguisher and put them out. And, yeah, he was kind of nuts. One of the reasons that they were kind of happy to see him go in a way, I guess, because he just didn't care.
1: <laughs> well, now that you mention it, Dayton had one, too, and I can't remember who it was. This would have been... Probably mid seventies, early seventies, and 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 it was channel I think twenty two because it would have been uh, what what Brandon Tartikoff would call a coat hanger network. You'd, yeah, yeah. You'd, you needed the loop uh, <laughs> yeah. to get in twenty two, and um, they, they did. They did. A, they had a movie. They also Channel Seven had a kids host in the in the in the morning called uh, uh, Uncle Ori and Ferdie Budget. And actually according to uh Al Lewis once told me that that he was he was uh uh courted by by CBS in the in the early in the mid 50s late 50s before they hired Captain Kangaroo that that they were oh, wow. some interest in in having him back when um 57 58 59 so instead uncle al just had 35 years here and and tried not to have kids sit on his on his accordion because too, yeah. often, too often they peed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's a Famous story. Yeah. yeah,
0: someone told us that at, a, at an event that uh, this guy said his wife peed on Uncle Al's
1: accordion and <laughs> yeah. that was made in Europe and cost like. Three grand to fix. Or yeah, you'd, ridiculous. you'd have to take it all apart and clean. I, I just know. I think it was
2: insured, and they had to replace it that way. Is that what she told us? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know.
1: Yeah,
2: um, you had mentioned you know when nineteen became a uh, Fox affiliate, what a big deal it was, and for, it seems like forever growing up in the seventies and eighties, we wanted that fourth network because you know we grew up with four networks mostly, and then in the eighties with cable, we had thirty, which was you know seemed like a lot then. Of course, it's a bit, a blip now. But, um, yeah, when, when Fox came along, that was a, a, a big deal for a lot of people. You
1: know, they, they just did it a couple of nights a week. And yeah. I, I, I remember that, that, that early on when Married with Children was launched, they actually sent Ed O'Neill here to Cincinnati to do a, a lunch and interviews with, with, with the TV reporters and the newspaper and the radio and, and whatever. Uh, O'Neill was from Youngstown, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And had played, played for the Steelers for. Well, he
2: tried out for the Steelers. Yeah, he got caught he after was, the last.
1: He was right, briefly right. Yeah. at Ohio and a high U and another place to play oh. play football. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 it was a, it was a big big deal. And then you know when they kind of stumbled upon the Simpsons and, and that was before they had sports because I remember I think, yeah it, in ninety two when they got the football package away from yeah CBS, people were stunned people were stunned and they were wondering with the Homer and Bart Simpson sensibility, you know, can they are they confident <laughs> enough to do a, a, a sporting broadcast? And obviously, they you know they stole a lot of people from from CBS and a lot of the executives, but you know they made it work right off the bat.
2: So, what do you make of TV now? I was telling someone the other day that you know my daughter watches a one regular network show I would call it Riverdale on the CW, um, which is like our sixth broadcast network. She watches Stranger Things on Netflix, and then just tons of YouTube videos, and it's perfectly normal for her. And it, so, how, how do you see it going forward?
1: I, I'm glad that I'm near the end of my career i <laughs> the beginning because to try to keep up with everything, yeah, and with. You know, even looking at whether it was the Golden Globes a couple of weeks ago, or looking at the the Emmy Awards with, you know, the Hulu, Netflix, Amazon. I mean, just so many out there to to see it. Uh, the guy across the street from me the other day said, "We're out shoveling snow," and he said, "Hey, you know, I'm cutting the cord. I'm going to put a an antenna on the on the roof. I live in Fairfield, and and where we are, we can get Dayton and the and the Cincinnati yeah. stations both. But we got to have a, a, and you'll get." You Know and you'll get the sub channels, so you'll, yep. get, you know, you'll get laugh or bounce or or antenna TV. I mean, I, I find um, my escape has been I'll check out to see what's on the old Johnny Carson's, yeah, oh, I tape I those too, yeah, yeah I've yeah. metivoing those, and, and you know, I'll, I'll just look at the guide, yeah, and, and if it's like Carlin or or Robin Williams or Jonathan Winters, and there was once that it was both Robin Williams and Jonathan Winters, you know, I just or, or Letterman or somebody, I'll just punch it up and and then you know Steve Martin was on last night, nineteen seventy four really? or
0: something like
2: that. Yeah, wow.
1: <laughs> I, I find that the monologues don't hold up well.
2: They're still but, fun to watch him but, though, uh, to watch him react uh, to the audience uh, and, uh, and the, yeah, when, when jokes but, bomb and stuff.
1: But the but the uh, Q and A with with the the guests is just uh, just amazing. So I, I know that I, I saw the email too late, but like uh, Jerry Van Dyke, Dick Van Dyke's brother, died a couple of weeks ago. But yeah, it was like on a Thursday. And, uh, and I found it too late, but on Friday, Antenna then said they swapped out a Carson for Saturday to run an J- old Jerry Van Dyke where he was a guest. But mm-hmm. I, th- there's just way too much to keep up with. I mean, I, I, I watch the three or four favorite shows um, and graze the rest of the time. I, 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 I don't graze a whole lot on YouTube, but I f- use it more as a research yeah. resource. You know, if I want to see, you know, whatever I'm working on, you know, somebody that it's, it's there on YouTube. So some of the history, some of the real old history of because of, like Ruth Lyons was live. They, they didn't they didn't record it. They didn't. You know, so you can't. Those are rare to find. But I mean, you know, anything else you could find on YouTube somewhere? There. I have a question for you. The the Rod Serling storm, uh,
0: th- those were live as well, Were those live shot? Or, or, or
1: those were live, but two or three were shot with were, what's called kinescope. The process back then was to use a film camera to f- film the the TV screen, and so a couple of those exist. They do exist, a- and and I know of a couple of them. At least one is at. Is it in Binghamton, New York, where the Rod Serling files are? Um, it was back at one of the anniversaries. It was somebody who was involved with Channel 12 had helped find the one, and it was actually filmed. So they used it as a sales vehicle to try to sell it, get sponsors, and then sell it nationally. Never happened. But so that's why a couple of those. But but I I know I know of somebody in town who has a trunk of like 30 scripts really um, wow
0: um i would lo- i they, they, they would love to see those scripts honestly
1: well that man is, is pretty trying, amazing i i i know him and he's trying to do a book cool uh-huh. and, and to do a book of the scripts or about the scripts there there's another book that's there's a, a book that just came out last fall from the cleveland uh plain dealer tv critic mark dwitsiak it did did a book called Everything I Know I Learned from the Twilight Zone. And talk about <laughs> oh, yeah. Experience. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And and there's another one coming out, and I helped do some of the research on. Uh, there's a, a, an author in New York by the name of Nick Parisi who is doing a book on, it's the uh, complete compendium of Serling works mm-hmm. that would include, and so he had me go to the library to look at microfilm at the Post of the Enquirer to see if what night the storm was listed and whether it listed anything about the, 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 the a one sentence summary of the plot or any stories about it. Um, so I, I, I helped him kind of nail down some wind titles. You know, he had some titles, but he didn't have dates and kind of marry some of those up. And, and, and I, last I talked to him was last late last year. The book is done and, and it's, he's got a publisher, but he doesn't have a timetable for when that's going to be out. So there's a guy with the script in the book and it's, it's well, he's different from the a different guy. Yeah, Cause the guy with the scripts in the book really didn't want to talk to this guy. Who was sure. quite, a complete compendium, so. But there is a, you know, the, there are a couple of great twilight zone books out there. Yeah, of course. Um, and one of them was written in the, in the early nineties and I helped give him some information, but, uh, you know, I've tracked down Serling's home on Long Lane outside of Wyoming, and um, I know the street address of his apartment over where it, when he lived in, in uh, Price Hill. So it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Really it's really cool. I mean, it, it's amazing that Serling is still such a, you know, the Twilight Zone, I don't think, ever went off the air. No. And, you know.
2: I think for a while in the 70s, we had a hard time finding it in Cleveland. None of the stations ran it. And then in about the 80s, Channel 43 picked it up and ran it at midnight. And then it's been running ever since.
1: You know, and the, the tragedy of that was like in the, near the end of its run, Serling sold the rights. You know, his, his widow is still living, and she still controls some of the things, but the rights to the show. I mean, I watched one over Christmas. It was Art Carney as a Santa Claus with a magic bag of gifts. That yeah. Somebody would come up to him and say, "You know, I wanted this," and he could just reaches it and he was a, he was a, a horrible alcoholic in the beginning of the episode and um, the, it's they're just fascinating. Well, it's right? is an it incident
0: it's incident at Al Creek or incident at or it's the it's from a short story he did on Oh, yeah. Uh, the guy getting on the bridge about to be hung as a, as a traitor for for or for philandering and he's imagining him escaping um but the whole ha- the whole incident happens and that 30 seconds is the last second of his life it's brilliant it's just a, it's
1: brilliant it's wonderful well i did the, the the santa claus one i was i had always heard about it i had never seen it and so i, I put it on tape it was like three o'clock in the morning over christmas eve but i my when it was over my wife goes well can we kill it? i said no i want to read the credits and sure enough, to, you know, teleplay by by Rod Serling. It was his idea that to, to do this. So
2: yeah, I remember him. Uh, he thought there's a lot of talent out there in America. So he had this. He said he had people send in scripts, and he got out of like ten thousand scripts, only three were usable for televisions. So. <laughs> you
1: know, and, and there's been several re- reboots of it, and, and uh, was it? I think it was UPN before the UPN and the WB merged into the CW. Mm-hmm. Tried it, and you know, it, it missed one element. And that was Rod heart Serling. It just miss, miss, and it's Such a tragedy. I mean, he died. Um, I think at age fifty. He was a heavy smoker yeah. and, and 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 was in heart surgery, and it went south, and and he died so young. But what an amazing storyteller. Yeah. And you know, and people are still talking about you know. When, although I, I had the fun at one point when PBS did a American Experience, I think uh, about Rod Serling, and so I had that on tape, and, and talked to some of the. There were still people live, this was the early 90s, who had worked with him in the 50s. And one guy said that they tried to talk Rod into being a co-host of a children's clown, a <laughs> children's show. Um, there was a, a, a Rosemary Kelly, I don't know if you remember the name. She was a, a woman who hosted some shows and, and did different work at Channel 5. And she was in a 15-minute sitcom was it called Here's Kathy or Something Kathy. And Sterling wrote it, and, and they said that you know, they get the script and then they'd go off and rewrite it because he couldn't do comedy.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, I'm sure he wasn't happy being rewritten. <laughs> That's funny.
2: Well, gosh, I think we just scratched the surface here, but um, our guest has been John Keyswater. He's the TV and radio columnist for now for WVXU, uh, the public radio right, the, station the here.
1: Blogs at uh, wvxu.org, and if you do that, slash TV Keys, TV K I E S E. It'll take you right to the board.
2: Perfect. All right. Well, awesome. Looking forward to hearing and seeing uh, more stuff from you and for you to continue covering the uh, the media beat here in town. And, of course, we'll link to all your stuff from our site as well. Cool. Promo code. Pro- okay. Oh, yeah. We do we do a promo code for this, so you get to pick the promo code for this episode and people can use it. If
0: they listen. They can go to cinzyshirts.com and save 20%. Any any word you want to, you get to name it. You
2: would be TV Keys. Surling.
0: Oh, there you I go. It. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I like love it. It. I like it.
2: All right. Awesome. Okay, folks, use the promo code SERLING and get yourself twenty percent off at Cincy Shirts. Well, that work at Old School Shirts, Darren, because we talked about old school shirts today. Sure, Let's do it.
0: Uh, Cincyshirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com. There you
2: go, folks listening Certainly. out of town. There you go. All right. Well, uh, again, thanks for uh, for coming out to Hyde Park today, John. This
0: is great
2: fun. All right. Thanks. John Keyswater, the media columnist for WVXU Radio. You can find his Media Beat column at wvxu.org. We'll also have a link to it from our blog, as well as from our Podbean page. If you're listening to this any other way than through our Podbean page, which I assume most of you are, uh, just go to cincyshirts.podbean.com and you can find the show notes for today's episode. And don't forget to use the promo code SERLING to get 20% off your order at cincyshirts.com or oldschoolshirts.com. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia, actually. You can find them on Facebook. And you can find Vintage Tees from Philadelphia and other great cities like Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, and more at oldschoolshirts.com and of course at Cincy Shirts, uh, both online and in store. Uh, online or CincyShirts.com. Our stores are in Over the Rhine and Hyde Park in Cincinnati. And coming soon to Loveland. Download or stream us next time. Bye. Cincinnati!